Hello. If this is your first time listening to the award-winning podcast, Jack of All Graves, a quick note. Before we get into the main topic, the topic that is the title of the episode, we always tell an unrelated story, shoot the breeze, and talk about horror movies we've watched this week. If you came here for the meat of the episode, our discussion of Palestine, there's a timestamp in the description, and you can just skip right to that part. Otherwise, go ahead and hang with us on the journey. Either way, thanks for being here. I can't be the only one, right? But I, I why, 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 why does an an unsolved crime, and in, in particular an unsolved murder, why does it hold such fucking intrigue and fascination and mystery? Every time I read up and study and, and watch docs on unsolved murderers, I, I ask myself the same fucking questions. Are there, you know, is that is, is the fucking is the killer still alive? Mm-hmm. Why did they stop? How did they evade capture? Might they fucking start up again? Who are they? Do they have a fucking job, a family, a normal life? Are there other people in their circle who know? You know, these are the yeah. fucking... I, I think these are the universal things that grip so much about unsolved, un, unresolved, unended fucking ongoing murder cases. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I get you. I think like we've, we've you like an unsolved case a lot more than I do. I, yeah, I do. <laughs> find them just mostly intensely frustrating, largely because, you know, in all of those questions that you're asking, I have all those questions, which bothers me. Um, but also like that deep knowledge that like a good reason most unsolved cases are unsolved is because the cops are very bad at their jobs and so it's like you know and i'll I'll talk a little bit uh, later not right now but about uh watching documentaries like true crime documentaries and how you always see that in these kinds Mm. of things but there's always this part of me that's like so annoyed because you know if someone just like followed up a tip from someone that they like didn't take seriously or like you know any number of things or if the victim wasn't a minority right yeah if they weren't a minority or a sex worker or something like that like we would have solved solved this ages ago so i tend to be Mm. more frustrated by cold cases uh than like excited by them but i do get what you mean about what is enticing about it exactly and it's it's this it's this fucking idea of someone walking around with that with that fucking knowledge that secret mm-hmm. you know because mm-hmm. you don't put that on a job application you don't put that you know <laughs> on your fucking tinder profile right no, but not so much. you fucking you've got it in you you know you're carrying that around yeah just are you always waiting for the knock are you are you are you do you dread getting a parking ticket you know what i mean it, yeah it it's 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 captivating to me mm. um and so with that in mind travel with me won't you to rochester in new york in the early 1970s now All right. uh rochester from what i can gather about rochester in the in the 70s um it's a city of some industry big companies there big uh, chemical and petrochemical and you know kodak were there xerox were there bausch and lawn were there uh wow. it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of, you know, it's, it's a, a, a culture of learning and education. Uh, you've got the University of Rochester, Rochester Institute of Technology, cultural, vibrant cultural scene. Yeah, you got the Eastman School of Music there in Rochester, uh, founded by uh, one of the Kodak founders, George Eastman. Uh, it's, a yes, a city of conflict, but 
a city of some cultural fucking vibrancy. Hmm. Uh, that said, on November the 16th, we're in 1971, all right? It's around 4.20 p.m. A uh, 10-year-old Puerto Rican child by the name of Carmen Colon was out running an errand and disappeared. Mm-hmm. She was running an errand to a pharmacy, uh, which uh, her, her grandmother asked her to visit, um, but was turned away uh, because the prescription she'd been asked to collect hadn't been processed. She was she was sent away um, and was observed. She was witnessed. There are witnesses all along here, and it's fucking disgusting how no mm. one intervened. She was witnessed entering a car okay. uh, parked close to the pharmacy. Some hours later that evening at uh, around 10 to 8 in p.m., she was reported missing. And less than an hour after she left the pharmacy, lots of people, lots of motorists witnessed her naked from the fucking waist down. Oh, no. Running. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Running away from a reversing vehicle. Stop. Frantically. Fucking right. Shouting. Waving her arms. <sighs> shouting in an attempt to flag down uh, passersby. And at least one of these witnesses also then went on to report that they'd observed Cologne being led back to the vehicle submissively by what would have been her abductor wow fucking wild it's incredible to me like this just as a side uh, you know the big doc that everybody's been watching lately is the natalia grace the curious case of natalia grace Uh and there's like you know a point in this this is a, a young girl that her parents you know saw the movie orphan and decided that's her, you know, yep, <laughs> that, yep, yep, oh, yep, this yep. is actually a, a, you know, 20 something year old who is pretending to be eight or whatever. And so they yep. dropped her at like a place, gave her an apartment of her own and were like, have fun uh, when she was yep. eight years old. And she was like going into people's houses and like asking for food and all this kind of stuff. And yep. one of the things that like drove me crazy in the interviews they did with the people both before and after they found out, you know, like Mm. she was a kid, is that like they were all very like Midwest nice and polite and stuff like that, but then like Mm. very much never followed up and never were like something like, even if they thought something seemed off, they never were like, okay, tell me about your family situation. What's going on here? Like all this kind of stuff and how much people can see like an obvious situation where something horrific is happening to someone and be like, not my business. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Like that's going to, I'm going to get home late if I deal with that or Mm -hmm. whatever. Like, yeah, I don't want to get involved. Fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Of course. Like maybe that's a defiant kid running down the street away from their parent or something like that. Like, okay, I'm a check. Yeah, <laughs> like, are you serious? But no one uh, did. No one no did. No one did. And uh, she was found dead two days later, some twelve miles away Ugh. from that scene. Uh, autopsy revealed the, the 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 worst fucking outcome: raped, fractured Ugh. skull, broken vertebrae, uh, body extensively covered in fucking scratches from fingernails. You know what oh, I mean? She'd Jesus. fucking fought, man. She'd yeah. fought, and that. That that reluctance of anyone to get involved, uh, I don't know whether it was an attempt to assuage public guilt, but there was a, a reward offered to uh, New York newspapers, stumped up to uh, two and a half grand reward. There were billboards erected, you know, to try and find to try and find leads, but no ground was broken, no leads were found, and 
just over a month later, right, by the end of December, the case had already started to wind down. There were fucking three <sighs> detectives on the case by the end of December. And people saw this person, right? Like, because you said she was being oh, yeah, led absolutely. back to the car. Absolutely. She was witnessed being fucking led they back to the car. They saw the car. They saw the person. Yep. They saw yep. her. Ugh. Nothing. There was DNA. She was fucking covered in DNA. Well, it was the 70s though, right? Well. So we, well. we didn't have it yet. But that's that's another thing that fucking, you know, how many times have we spoken on this award-winning podcast <laughs> about fucking science catching up to these motherfuckers? Right, so yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's fast forward. Carmen Colon was by no means alone because uh, April the 2nd, 1973, around about five o'clock, an 11-year-old girl by the name of uh, Wanda Valkovich vanished from the same city, the east side of Rochester, while she was heading home, similar circumstances, on an errand, uh, to the grocery store, uh, around about 5.15pm, she left the grocery store, walked home alone, and she was reported again missing by her mother Joyce at 8 o'clock that evening. Um, This guy must have felt so emboldened at this point, like, I can have all of these witnesses, and nobody's gonna do anything, so... How could you not? Uh... 50 fucking detectives combing the area around her house where she often, you know, where she where she would hang out, where she would play. Um, again, witnesses recalled fucking seeing her uh, struggling with a grocery bag. Friends of hers saw her walking, clutching the grocery bag. See, this but is even sh- another, like, this, ugh. Yeah. You see a child struggling with a grocery bag. Like, yeah. I have, like, obviously you can't be like, hey, kid, get in my car and come home or whatever. But, yeah. like, I feel like there are solutions to this, yeah. you know? <laughs> like Even if it's just, like, hey, just you're right? Yeah, right. You're right. Like, j- drive next to them or something like that, you know, don't, like, yeah freak them out but like just make sure they get where they're going (laughs) like and i know at this point like again it was it was like the 80s really were like stranger danger picked up and people started to really be like hey like kids might get kidnapped by a stranger so like what's that um uh, it's fucking 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? What's that all about? I've heard that line. Often. Yeah, I, I think it was like a PSA thing or whatever. I've only really heard it as like a a meme or whatever as well. Okay. But I think it was like sort of a PSA. Um, mm. You know, once you get into like the 90s and everything, you have like uh, John Walsh hosting America's Most Wanted and, you know, like uh, where I think like his son was kidnapped and murdered. Um okay. And, you know, you have stuff like that that, like, picks up and people start really worrying about strangers in the 80s and 90s. But there's still a degree, like, where it just feels like, come on, like, common sense here. Yes. <laughs> like, how were we letting this happen and people weren't mm. concerned? Well, people were not concerned and letting it happen was exactly what they were doing in Rochester because she was found dead the next day. Uh, the next morning, in fact, at 10.15 a.m., she was found fully clothed some seven miles away from the city. Um, and fuck the details are so grim it, it, the the forensics looked as though she'd been thrown from a moving vehicle oh god uh, again sexually assaulted strangled covered in defensive wounds um, it, the, the investigation suggests that she had been reclothed after death mm. again DNA all over the place hair bodily fluids and strangely cat hair huh Talk about fucking leads, man. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like everything's here. 
Everything you know? is here. This is what I'm talking about, about why this is so frustrating, because there is zero reason why no one would have been able to solve this. Like, yeah. <laughs> everything is there. Witnesses, yeah. the, like, you know, I'm sure fingerprints on things on top of all of that stuff, because, okay, we don't have yeah. DNA, but you've got, yeah. like, all, all the pieces put together all of them all of them plus eyewitnesses you know yeah like before, people watched before she vanished people saw her uh talking with a guy in a, in a vehicle which matched the fucking descriptions of the vehicle that carmen disappeared in like uh, there can only be so many of them insane absolutely fucking nuts <sighs> another hotline you know the reward goes up to 10 grand uh you know but at this point, the, the the police are denying any connection between these two killings, right? Even Come though, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Denying any connection between the two murders, even though we've got a fucking very unusual thread emerging here. Carmen Cologne, uh, Wanda Varkovich. Uh, so the police performed a reconstruction, right? A, uh, a radio station, WOKR. They planned a, a televised reconstruction of Walkovich's abduction. Over 200 people call in. Over 200 fucking people ring this hotline reporting similar leads, but mm-hmm. nothing stuck, you know? Nothing, nothing, no, no nothing bore fruit. Mm-hmm. Another seven months pass, okay? So we are now in 1973, November, end of November 1973. And the pattern repeats. An 11-year-old girl, Michelle Mienza, vanished, uh, completely vanished after school. Her classmates... Saw her alone going to a nearby shopping centre. She was picking up a purse that her mother had left behind. And again, the eyewitnesses repeat the same fucking pattern. A a driver saw a man with a flat tyre. And he saw what he believed that he saw the man holding Michelle against her will. Uh. Oh, yeah. Uh, And this guy, this guy actually offered help. This guy tried to intervene. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the man reportedly hid Michelle behind him. Uh, hiding his license plate and the driver claimed a fear for his safety and drove off. Ah, come Come on. on. You're a grown-up. You're so fucking close. You're an adult. Well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, I feared for my safety, so I let him murder a child. Yeah. And And he didn't go straight to the police department either, yeah? He didn't, like, drive straight from there. Indeed. No, no, no. This was was later on. This was later after the disappearance had been reported. He was like, oh, well. (laughs) If if you fear for your yeah. safety, yeah. go straight to the police department. Despite the billboards, despite <laughs> the reconstructions, despite the rewards, despite the news, uh, the pattern repeats. Michelle's <sighs> body found later in a ditch some 15 miles away. Same pattern. Assault, rape, strangulation. <sighs> Again, white fucking cat hair all over her clothing. Hmm. What the fuck? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. What the fuck? So what we got here is we've got an MO. We've got Mm -hmm. three victims uh, killed in an almost identical fashion, all with that same pattern of alliterative names. Oh, yeah. Yep. Hence Mm -hmm. uh, the the dubbing the alphabet killer. We've got Michelle Mayenza, Wanda Walkovich, uh, Carmen Cologne, uh, very, very fucking strange pattern. Yeah. I mean, it has what? to be a coincidence, right? Like. I don't know. It's a weird pattern, but also. Like. The implications of that. Here's the. Here's my thought process on that. Like, 
A, that's just like an insane coincidence because like they were all walking by themselves, things like that, you know, like, so how would he have known this? If he did know this, then like that to me would implicate obviously like someone like a teacher or something like that, that would like know who these kids were, like someone who has or a cop for that matter, who has some sort of like information on this. But that takes like the randomness element out of it and should really close in the search for this person yeah, if they somehow knew agree. who these kids are because you can't just know that by watching you would have to have information the third one the third kind of instance makes makes me lean more towards it not being coincidental mm. two with alliterative surnames is, is a coincidence i think three is pushing it Right, yeah. I mean, it is. You know? It's not impossible, but certainly the odds are very slim. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't but, know what but, the incidences in Rochester, New York, of people naming their kids alliterative things is. <laughs> you know, maybe that was really common in 1970s New York. Much to consider. I'm actually going to fucking look into that. <laughs> um, but but that's where it stops, right? That's right. where that's where the fucking that's where it ends. So three, and, and then never happens three and done three and done but i mean lots of suspects were investigated over the years right there were there's loads of crossover between other serial killers in the yeah, area as well i mean some of the some of the suspects miguel cologne uh, that was carmen's uncle um a, a little bit of time after a murder he fled to puerto rico and took his own life mm. um but you know obviously suspicion would fall on him but dna ruled him out mm mm-hmm. Uh, then you've got a guy called Dennis Termini. He was a firefighter from Rochester and also a serial rapist in the area. Lots of similarities between his MO and the alphabet killings, but DNA ruled him right out. Mm. He also took his own life sometime later on, which is, you know, that's a good... Coincidences all over the place. <laughs> Indeed. But right, another fucking serial killer, a guy by the name of Kenneth Bianchi. He was also... He, he, familiar uh, with him, He was yeah. dubbed the Hillside Strangler. Mm-hmm. Um... No evidence, no connection to the crimes, no evidence at all got ruled out. But there's another guy, right? A guy by the name of Joseph Nasso. He was a, a, another kind of double initial killer. Mm-hmm. Targeted women with matching initials. Uh, he had the exact same MO. He would strangle his victims. Uh, he, he, he also would photograph his victims. Mm-hmm. Geographical overlap, you know. He, he lived in Rochester in the early 70s. But DNA ruled him out. It was nothing to fucking do with the guy. Interesting. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, at that point, you kind of have to wonder if, like, it's a DNA issue. (laughs) Like, was it tainted in some way? The, The two of the victims, right? Two of the girls the DNA was destroyed before modern genetic profiling, you know, came of of, matured. Yeah, they Um, just would have no reason to keep that stuff. On file, exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. But the the second victim, Wanda, uh, the DNA that they found on her still exists and is still being Mm re-examined. So, you know, this, this, oh, fuck, this may be one of those where science catches up to the Yeah, it's caught up to it. I'm surprised it hasn't already because, Uh you know, DNA is you know like one of the ways in which they use it right like when it comes to people like yep. uh the um east area rapist um exactly, exactly like you know the 
the thing about that is I was like, they don't necessarily find his DNA, but you find like relatives and things like that, familial DNA. And so to me, it's like, how have they not, how have they not come across that yet? Yeah, like that's uh, that seems. Not only do you have to stay fucking squeaky clean for entire life, you've got to pray your family. Your whole family has to, yeah, and not like not just stay squeaky clean, but not like be interested in your, you know, family history. Like my shit's in twenty three and me. I wanted to see, you know, my genetic ancestry and all that kind of stuff. So like, if someone related to me commits a a crime outside of the ones that they are constantly in jail for already, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then they've got a straight line straight to Mm. me. Uh, from me that way um so yeah that's kind of like this is exactly what i'm talking about like they had everything everything i would no reason yeah 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 there was a uh you know a fucking um uh uh kind of a portrait done of the guy a photo fit you know an e-fit of the fella Mm -hmm. because so many people fucking saw him yeah like that's the thing everyone saw him and that's i mean that's the other thing is it's like if all these people saw him obviously like he must have been coming from out of town or something like that, because otherwise, mm. like, people would have been like, "Oh yeah, that's you know Joe Schmo from down the street." Yep. Like, oh, so that's clearly, call. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, like clearly, it wasn't someone that like people like recognized Knew. or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, you know, m- this makes my theory just with no other evidence except what you've told me. So this is my TikTok <laughs> sleuthing right now. Is it's a cop from the next town over? <laughs> that's cool. my. That's my go. thought on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Just... So if if anyone in the Rochester PD is listening, mm-hmm. uh, we've uh, we've we've gone and solved it for you, mate. But we've look, this one has all of the fucking hallmarks. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a, a very definite mo, a very fucking you know, a very clear link between the victims, eyewitnesses, and then poof, the guy just stops. Mm. Yeah, which is also he out there still you know. Yeah, like when someone just stops, it's like. Did they die? Yep. Did they get arrested? Did they uh, find Jesus? Did they did they find Jesus? Did they get a new MO? Did they move? Yeah. Yep. Uh there's, you know, various things that could result in that. But yeah. uh, it's just deeply frustrating when like deeply that's fucked. not a hard case. This is not one of those things where like, God, it's so complicated. The guy <laughs> just like, vanished just... into thin air. No. He left fucking cat hair and DNA all over these fucking over. girls. And witnesses. Witnesses. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. what really yes. gets me. People saw. Come on. And I, I think I think the real the real fucking fascination, I guess, for me in an unsolved murder like this, an unsolved series of murders like this, is have you ever walked past one? Mm, mm-hmm. You know? Have you yeah, ever shared a fucking like, lift? Yeah, or have like, you ever so, fucking like shared the a bus? relatives in the fridge, you know, like how often yeah, yeah, you yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. casually passed by something. Bodies in a suitcase, yes. Mm-hmm. Ah, man, it fucking makes one ponder. Sure does. Let me quote directly from my notes, if I may. Yes, please do. Fucking look at these nerds. Oh, mise en scène. Anyone has ever said me well said in such a horny way before. The way I whispered the word sex cannibal recently. Worst comes to worst, Mark. I'm willing to guillotine you for science. Thank you. That's really, really sweet. It's you cold know. outside, but my pancreas is talking to me. I'm fucking, <laughs> I'm gonna leg it. You know how I feel about that, Mark. I think you feel great about it. So listen, Jack of all graves, uh, if you have one ear to the ground listening out for the fucking weird and the unusual and the uh, 
disquieting, mm. then that's where you will hear us. If you have one eye on the unusual, on the disturbing, the uncanny, that is where you will find us. If you enjoy watching the sick and the unusual and the interesting, that mm. is where you will find us. Those are the tunes we sing. Those are the fucking dreams we dream. <laughs> and you're warmly welcome to mm. join us or not because we'd be doing this anyway isn't that right it's a very good point we are very happy to simply talk to ourselves but we are so happy that you've yep. decided to join us and come along for this journey anyway mm. uh hi mark how are you doing yeah really good thanks um uh, i half of me is tempted to kind of say look we're not just a, we're not a Sunday podcast anymore. We're a Sunday and Monday podcast. And the other <laughs> half of me is tempted to say, you know what? Fuck you. Fuck <laughs> yours, man. Fuck all of y'all. Uh, yeah. You get weekly episodes, right? They may not be on the same day. You you know, you, who cares? This is where my, my neurodivergence um, kicks in, where I'm like, listen, for some people, it's routine. You know, you got to oh, have your God. thing that you every every morning, every Monday morning, you get up and you listen to your joag or whatever so okay. you know <laughs> we try it's just li- life, try. That's all. life is di- life is it difficult is. and life is unpredictable life is exactly that I, yes. I have i have empathy for those and empathy for us <laughs> because life that's is the difficult. thing with empathy isn't it it's difficult mm-hmm. it's difficult to pick a side sometimes exactly that maybe there aren't sides um mm. you know i'm wearing a dog right now life is weird it's what it is <laughs> she <laughs> really is <laughs> literally uh, wearing my on dog. your feet yes Huh? On your feet? On my feet? Where is you? You keep saying you're wearing a dog. I can't see this, him. This this bag that is around me right now. This strap is not part of my jacket. That's a like little satchel th- thing that my dog is in. Fuck <laughs> off! I don't believe you. It, he is. Yeah, he is. Well, you can't see him, but he's asleep in here. Well, 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 <laughs> listeners, uh, you can't see the zoom, but Corrigan is like some kind of. You know, fucking, what's that island of Dr. Moreau-esque fucking marsupial? She's produced a dog from a pouch. Yes, I, I am. This is my, I am a kangaroo right now with my mm. my little Joey in my lap. So, you know, it, it's what I have to do to be able to record this podcast without the dog walking into walls behind me. He does this thing. We've now, our our professional term for it within this household is bonking, where... He just like walks around and around. He can't see, can't hear. Um, his back legs don't work super well. And so he just explores the world by eventually walking into shit. And so you'll be sitting watching TV and just suddenly hear like, bong, and he's just <laughs> slammed headfirst into the trash does, can. <laughs> does he still have powers of vocalization? Because at 17, he is the oldest fucking dog I've ever known, I've ever heard of. <laughs> he, he never really vocalized. Um, he's very quiet. Famously once... Mm. Um, because of this, it was like if we left him somewhere, we wouldn't know he was there. So one day we were like running all over the neighborhood trying to find the dog. We we're like, the dog got out. Oh, my God, he's lost all this kind of stuff. And like four hours later, I opened up the garage and he was just quietly sitting at the garage door <laughs> waiting for us <laughs> to come get him. But he never barked or anything like that. He just sat there like, oh, they'll come back. Uh, so, no, point. he is also perfectly silent on top of <laughs> blind and deaf and um you know not great at walking and uh bed shitting and bed shitting <laughs> he did he peed on my butt in bed the other day which was oh christ which is not great it was i 
it was my own fault. He was getting How could antsy. How be your fault? Well, he was getting antsy, and that's usually his, like, you know, like, hey, you got to take me out or whatever. But I was very sleepy, so I tried to convince him not to and, like, you know, tucked him close to me or whatever, which sometimes works. But on that occasion, after a few minutes, suddenly I was like, my butt is hot and oh. wet. And I realized that, that, that sounds the like victim blaming. You, he, he is the only one at fault. He pissed on you. <laughs> don't, you know, don't. He is old. This dog is older than God. He is. He, he can piss wherever he wants to if I don't if I don't get him up. So. And if you think about it, dog backwards is God, isn't it? Well, there you go. So, so you know, much to consider. Something to think about. Mm. Things that make you go, hmm. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I used to be able to do that entire song. What song? Things that make you go hmm by CNC oh, Music Factory. Gotcha. I used to have I used to have all the lyrics in my mind. Let's see. Here's how it started. Yes, an example of how another brother can trample, ruin your life, sleep with your wife, watch your behind. There was a friend of mine. And it tails off there, but I can still do maybe forty percent of it. Nice. I, I know most of the periodic table of elements. <laughs> Not as good. <laughs> Uh, I was about to start like wrapping the periodic table to your beat there, <laughs> but anyway, maybe we'll do that as a snack one month. Mm, yeah, that's it. It's really freestyle. gonna entertain entertain the masses. I hate beatboxers. Mind is that you something you know about beatboxers? me? Beatboxers don't. Like How do you them. hate beat? I mean, uh, don't why? like them. I think they all sound the same. And well, they don't yeah, that's good. the idea. <laughs> um. They're not trying to be like unique. It's like they're trying to sound like you know percussion instruments and whatnot. I, I'm I'm never impressed. The best beatboxer mm. in the world is unimpressive to me. Well, can you do it? No, I could. <laughs> you but could, but I don't want to. Yeah, sure. I could. I could. Mm. I could. Be- Sounds like I could become to me. bollocks with a couple of weeks practice. I could become as good as the best beatboxer around. Well, then do it. I believe. No, I do don't it. want to. Because I don't like. I don't like them. Well, then I don't it's, believe you. I think it's I don't jealousy. like beatboxers. In the same way that I don't like magicians, as you know, uh, I don't like ventriloquists. Okay, but still. I think beatboxers, it's the same. It's its something that anybody could do if they were bored enough. <laughs> well, fine. If you say so. But <clears throat> anyways, Mark. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. have a watch along coming up this right. uh, Shit. Saturday. Yeah, yeah, we do. This fucking Saturday. And uh, my dive into the alphabet murders there has led me mm. to nominate the theme for this month's watch along, which is this Saturday, the 20. Uh, I wrote it down and now I can't I find it. Say. It is the 24th. Hey, go me. Hey, nicely done. 24th of February. Yes, it is. And the theme is just fucking straight up human murderers, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. No ghosts, no fucking zombies, no, no monsters. No monsters, yep. No, you know, fucking Lovecraftian evils, none of that. Just mm. straight up good old fucking human murderers. Now that could be a crime procedural, it could be it could be a you know, a slasher, it could be anything, but it's gotta be just humans killing humans. Yep. I feel great okay. about that. That's a genre so I'm into. On, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So think on. Uh, do you have a favorite human fucking humans killing humans movie? Yes. Uh, if it's gory, fantastic. If it's mm. shit, even better. Just sure. suggest it. Just come at me. 
Um, uh, you are baiting we'll Canadian usual... boy Ryan right now, but can't see the <laughs> um, 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 And I'll give you the illusion of democracy mm. a bit later on next week, and we'll fucking get together. Um, do you know what what would what would have to be in place for you guys to be able to have tins while doing these watch longs? Because they're in the middle of the day for you guys, aren't they? Well, it's Saturday. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Yeah, okay, people fine. can day drink on Saturday should they choose good and uh i think you should but yes that's that's the theme right so yes, get okay. get your fucking thinking caps on and let's do this yeah mark will will post in the group asking for suggestions and then yes. a poll towards the end of the week to yes. you know lock it in uh i'm excited about this i think this has a lot of potential good i, I feel like we're, we're kind of joag 101ing this week aren't we this is this is this episode feels geared towards <laughs> to noobs yeah maybe a little bit <laughs> Well, I, I like do that. know that there are people who have come specifically uh, for our Palestine episodes. So, you know, as a result, might as well give them little entries into who we are, what You've we're about. You've got to give the people what they want. Indeed. Or what they need, yes. for that matter. Um, yes, yes. Also want to shout out to the book club this week. Uh, we talked about Behind Her Eyes by Sarah Pinborough. And it was a very good time. We ended up going for like an hour and a half this nice. time. You know, we usually go for about an hour talking, but we had lots to say uh, about this book. Um, you know, it's a real divisive one because really like the twist ending is what it's known for. It's what it was marketed off of. Um, and it is one of those twist endings that either makes you go like, oh, bro, that's brilliant. Or like, fuck you. Absolutely not. Uh, so it was a very fun book to discuss on that end. Um, but yeah, if you're interested in joining the book club, just such a wonderful group of people who always have amazing conversations and uh, lots of fun books to read, even when they're bad, it makes good conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, jackofallgraves.com slash book club for the calendar of all the books that we're reading this year and the link to the Discord, the link to the shoppable list from Gibson's Bookstore where you would get mm. a 20% off uh, on any of those books with the code JOAG. Join us. It's a grand old time. Wonderful. Yes, beautiful. We're about to get into uh, what we watch, but I have like a little bit of like a rant before we get Please. there. If you don't mind. A Corey's um, video rant. <laughs> Corey's video rant right here. <laughs> it may end up something of that nature because I have, you know, I've said recently that one of the things that I like to do when I'm like just not in the zone to watch movies and things like that is to watch documentaries mm. and docu-series and things like that. Um, and my constant complaint is sort of the Netflixification of docu-series, how they're always way too long um, and you can you know, they should really be like a 45 minute episode of Dateline or whatever, you know, like there's not seven episodes of story yeah. here. And I feel like this past week I have been running up against that constantly. I wrote, I watched Butchers of the Bayou, which I believe was from A&E. I watched Lover, Stalker, Killer on Netflix. That's like the big one on Netflix this week. It's like every week Netflix releases some sort of true mm. crime docu-series that everyone talks about. And this week it was Lover, Stalker, Killer. Last week's... You know, just super quick. Yeah. <clears throat> I frequently have sat down in front of Netflix wanting to watch a documentary. Yeah. Uh, it's often after chatting with you. I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. yeah, I'll, I'll catch up, yeah, do a few of these. And, yeah. and I never, I always fucking back out because I see, oh, fuck, limited series, seven right. episodes, fuck yeah. off. I, and I know exactly what I'm going to get. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you're committing to spending three, four or five hours on something that you're like, it's the information that I could have gotten from reading an article or something mm. like that, you know, um, reenactments and dramatic music and yeah. all this stuff that's unnecessary. So I watched those two. I watched part of The Truth About Jim and I watched They Called Him Mostly Harmless, which is actually a documentary, not a docuseries, but in that hour and 20 minutes manages to be way too long. Uh. And <laughs> I was just thinking like as when I finished, they called him mostly harmless. I like wrote a summary <laughs> of it in my letterboxed <laughs> review. That was like literally one sentence. Uh, and I was like, that's the picture, you know, <laughs> and uh, watching lover, stalker, killer, like someone had said one of the most popular reviews, which has made men very angry. But they were like, if there was one woman working on this case, they would have cracked it in a day. <laughs> and mm. it's true. Like the whole thing was like, this is I was 18 minutes into it and I was like and I wasn't even paying full attention I was like scrolling through you know Instagram and all that kind of stuff and I was like oh that's what happened I'm like this is a 90 minute documentary <laughs> and at 18 minutes I figured out what it took the police four years to gather four years <laughs> like come the fuck on uh and I just I feel like uh, I don't know if I, I want to do this like as a Ko-Fi thing or maybe on our TikTok or something like that. But like, a, mm. you know how there's people like there's like saved you a click type things sure. or there's people who like when there's clickbait on Instagram, yeah, the first yeah, comment just... is always someone who's like, here's what the yeah. article says. Like, I just want to make like videos after I watch these stupid ass documentaries oh, do it. where do it's it. just like, <laughs> here's whether or not it's worth watching. And... <laughs> Regardless, here's what the story is that you're going to get. And I can probably mm. summarize it for you in 90 seconds. <laughs> I'm certain to I said this whole thing before when we when we spoke about this last. But I, it's it's something which I think by now is overdue to be satirized. Mm, I think mm -hmm. a, a, a really fucking sharp, nicely honed satire of that stupid fucking drawn out format with the identical credit sequences right, yeah. and the same kind of cadence to the to the you know to the dock as it unfolds i think that's yeah. overdue uh and i don't mean like a scary movie type of satire i mean right. something really nicely observed uh, exactly yeah it needs 100%. taking down it yes needs. it's just it frustrates the shit out of me like the they called him mostly harmless um i'm gonna spoil this because it's like there's nothing huh, you, you don't need to spend an hour and 20 minutes watching this. Um, so if you don't want this spoiled for some reason, you want to waste your time, give me, you know, a minute and <laughs> skip that, you know, hit the hit the thing twice or whatever to get your 60 seconds forward. They called him Mostly Harmless is a documentary about a guy uh, whose dead body was found uh, on the Appala Appalachian Trail um, and they could not identify him. And he was found, he was like 85 pounds when they found him. Um, and they're like trying, you know, to figure out the identity of this guy. But the cops kind of like did not give it much effort for whatever reason. They just kind of like let it go. And so these like Facebook sleuths uh, start groups trying to identify this guy. And over the course of this, these Facebook group, like moderators start like bullying each other because they want the clout of being <laughs> the person who 
identifies this guy. Uh, mm. And so they're like telling each other to kill themselves and like having all these falling outs. Like, you know, it's basically about middle-aged women bullying each other most of this documentary while they try to figure out who this guy is um and they talk to like various people because appalachian trail hikers are usually pretty close-knit um and over the course of this they eventually manage to find someone who recognized who he was and uh it turns out that he was like a heinous abusive dude who had multiple women who said that he terrorized them throughout uh, his life. So they'd spent all this time trying to track down who this guy was, and he turned out to be terrible. Um, And that, like, he had basically wandered off into the woods and, like, left his entire life behind. He paid for, like, nine months of his apartment, left all of his stuff, passport, wallet, everything there, wandered Mm. off into the woods, basically to die, it seems Mm. like. Like, he realized he was a shit dude, kind of spent the last few months of his life on the Appalachian Trail being a cool dude to people, uh, and then died. Seems like he starved himself to death. But it's like, that that's the story. It's mostly just these Facebook sleuths <laughs> fighting with each other. Picking over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and each taking sort of responsibility for having found this guy when really it came down to like DNA and all and this does, kind of stuff. does the documentary spend a lot of time focusing on twat bickering about it? Yes. Uh, 100%. That's pr- like probably 75% of this documentary is just watching these ladies who have nothing which based going on what on you've said isn't, isn't is tangentially related to the actual topic. Right. Exactly that. And it's like okay, then if you marketed this as like something about like internet sleuths, right? And the problems sure. with internet sleuthing. <laughs> like that would be one thing. But if you're marketing this as like a mystery of like oh, who is this guy on the trail, you know, all this Mm. kind of stuff. Then it's like, you could have told me this in 10 minutes. This could be a YouTube video. There's Mm. no reason for this to be an entire documentary. Um, And that drives me insane. (laughs) Like, why am I wasting my time with this? Of, uh, you know, just grabbing your Osmo after you watch one of these documentaries and just sum it up in 90 seconds. Exactly. Just tell people what happens. Bam, saved you 90 minutes or four hours or whatever, like with Butchers of the Bayou or Mm. Lover, Stalker, Killer, things that took a long time getting to the point where you're like, okay, you could have told me that like really quick. (laughs) So that's my rant for this week. And maybe that's a thing. I don't know. Let me know if you think that's a thing that you would watch if I put that on the TikTok or whatever. My recap of documentaries freshly as soon as I watch them. (laughs) I'd watch that. Oh, good. Okay. Well, if I have one audience member, then there we go. (laughs) I watch all your fitness talks. You can watch my documentary summaries. (laughs) Deal. Deal. What else did you watch this week, Mark? All right. So some good, some good, Mm. uh, some great. Ooh. Uh, Where do we want to start? Let me see. I finally got around to dream scenario. Oh, I watched that this week as well. Did you enjoy it? Please no, tell me you enjoyed it. I did not. Oh, fucking but hell. Here's the thing. This is a this is a I am not the target audience thing. You know that like I don't I don't like movies about people making problems for themselves. <laughs> and I don't like dramas. And I don't like like basically this is one of those ones where I was like, this is a good movie, I'm sure. I get why people like it. It was just for me, I was sitting there and I was like, Oh, if this guy's, you know, this guy's got a lot of life problems, he should fix those. 
and mm. then that would like you know that's no, it that most was... of the time when i watch things that's my thought processes that was not should my probably read change his... at all yeah <laughs> so dream scenario uh for those of you who it's passed by nicholas cage is a wholly unremarkable and kind of yellow belly kind of spineless kind of non-entity of a of a guy mm-hmm. uh, he works as a as a professor in a university and a phenomenon erupts where for fucking no reason no no apparent reason at all uh thousands of people all across the world start to simultaneously dream about him every single night uh i i I, I know I've talked about this before, right? But I this is just one more chapter in the incredible fucking career trajectory of Nicolas Cage. Right, yeah. The fucking, that guy, man. He's gone from kooky kind of heartthrob, mm-hmm. you know, to, to action leading man, to family fucking family friendly adventure kind of Disney Amblin kind of star. Yeah. And then, you know, absolute fucking stalwart of the horror genre, just really interesting horror picks. And he can now just decide what to do. And the fact that he's picking projects like Dream Scenario, I I fucking love Nicolas Cage. I oh, love yeah. him. I 100%. fucking love him. I hope he's not. Is he problematic? I hope he isn't. He probably is a bit, isn't he? <laughs> There's like a... This is a complicated because you know my like general thing is like don't defend men accused of shit or whatever. Yeah. But like there, he's like one of the few that I make like a mild exception for, and I Little, accept other yeah. people's things because the thing that you know he was like in trouble for or whatever was like a thing with his ex-wife where yeah. a cop was like, um you know they were drunk in public being a nuisance or whatever and Uh the cop like arrested him or something like that for like assault or something but it was because he grabbed her arm and pulled her to go like and it was like oh you know he assaulted her by grabbing her and then he had like an ex who uh claimed various things about him but in the same like time like also made like a whole bunch of like unhinged claims about like oh his wife is jealous of me and all these kinds of things so it's like mm. kind of a grain of salt sort of thing sure. that said i understand if people are like no nope, that's it i fucking cut him out or whatever i just think the particular things lobbed at him are like not really a thing <laughs> not worth not worth not worth a canceling right yeah not in my opinion but i understand if other people do <laughs> Well, look, Dream Scenario. Firstly, it's a very, very funny film. Um, it 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 does beautiful things with. It is. It's funny as fuck. All of these weird dreams that he's just present in, as mm-hmm. you know, a, a a bystander just doing nothing. You see, kind of. That's shots true. There are some very funny, very very funny, and things, he'll just yeah. wander in to the scene doing nothing, just watching. Uh, <laughs> very self-effacing. You know, he's a, he's a very brave performer in that. He's never shy about coming across in in very weird and kind of yeah. unsavory kind of ways. And, yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the the nature of of people's dreams changes as his life changes. You know, he tries mm-hmm. to wrest some control back from the of the situation that he's found himself in on social media. He, he employs a marketing team, which is hilarious. Um, it's it's it's. Did you not find it a funny film? I found it a very funny film. I think, I mean, in ways, I think so. Yeah, I don't know if I would be like, it's a really funny film, but it had some very funny moments in it. I think, yeah, I, I think my thing with it is that, like, I th- 
I don't know. Continue on your. No, no, no. I don't. I like it. I felt like it was a bit muddled in the. It was trying to do too much. It was doing like it had a lot of things to say. And I didn't necessarily think it followed through in a lot of ways with those things. Um, yeah, th- it it has a kind of a sour undercurrent. Her <laughs> kids are stupid. It has a kind of there's there's right a lot there's of... a cancel culture undercurrent yes, yes, of yes. it. You know, um, yeah, various things like that. That like for me, I was like, okay, it doesn't really. I don't totally get think it like nailed its messaging mm-hmm. in it. Um, I think yeah. the performances are really good. Like you said, it's brave and bold, and not just from yep. him, but from like you know the that one girl in it yes. who kind of becomes like his. Um, I don't know how to describe that, but like who really kind of becomes a catalyst for a lot of the issues that he faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. You know, there's and the, such the, the last the last kind of him. twenty minutes feel tacked on. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when you know, fucking dickhead online influencers work out how how to insert themselves into dreams, and obviously they right, use it yeah. as marketing. They obviously use it to fucking push product yeah. um yeah that's so like that was i was like which is that was a bit exactly i was like it's it's funny and everything but i don't necessarily think it tone it tonally fit the rest mm. of what this movie was but i also don't yeah. know like how else they would have like sort of like wrapped this up or anything like yeah. that so for me i think it was just like i didn't totally feel like it stuck the landing on a lot of those things and on top of that like like I said, I commend Nicolas Cage for playing characters like this and stuff like that, but that doesn't mean I want to watch them. Like, just watching uh, this sad sack throughout this whole thing. Yes. Like, you know, I tend to be... by the public. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, how, like, you tend to have, like, a mindset of, like, you know, a mind over matter, willpower, like, you know, you can, yes. you can make Decide. choices or whatever, yes, you know? yes, yes. And I always push back on that, but there is a degree to which, like, I know that that internally is a thing for me as well. And yeah. when I see, like, someone just, like, I don't want to watch someone who just always makes the wrong decisions and who, like, yes. can't can't control anything in their life. You know, I get frustrated with them more than I empathize with them. Yes. And the film deals with that, I think. You know, for the first third, it shows us in no uncertain terms that he's a passive participant yeah. in his own life mm-hmm. he just lets things happen and that is reflected in the dreams people are having about him no matter what fucking fucked up shit yeah. is happening in their dream he's just there like, passive yeah. looking on yeah. uh and and as he attempts to kind of assert this agency in his life his presence yeah. in these dreams changes it deals with that it, i think yeah. it it's you know, it does, that's not yeah. That's accident. what. This is what like. That's not a criticism. That's yeah, yeah, yeah Me yeah, yeah. saying why I'm not the target audience is because I don't want to watch that. That's yes. not saying it's a bad movie for doing that. It's me going. Yes. This is why I didn't I'm, enjoy I'm the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the it's good, but I don't like it part. Uh, well, I did a nice easy yeah. four stars, no problem. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I. I think I still gave it like a three and a half or something on there, though. Hey, you can't, you can't not. Whether you enjoy it or not, you can't deny it. It's a a good old piece of film. I watched Mosquito. Oh yes, good times. I watched Mosquito. Wasn't that fun? Really good times. Yes, it was. Do you know what I got from it? I got big bad taste vibes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Homemade kind of feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, just nice bit of fucking schlock. Um, I felt bad for Gunnar Hansen, man. I didn't. I think they did him dirty. Gunnar Hansen was in it, you know, the yes. once mighty Leatherface. Yep. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It, it felt like he was slumming it. I think Gunnar Hansen. 
I think I said when we were watching it that I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen Gunnar Hansen like outside of uh, TCM. And so yeah. like I did not realize it was him until I was like scrolling through IMDb and I was like, oh, as soon as I oh. saw him, I sat up. Bolt- face. Um, <laughs> yeah, I-, I feel as though towards the end of his life as this film was, I believe he 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 was worth he was worth more fair enough but it is a fun mm. movie so you it know. is a fun movie and yes a rubber mosquito does in fact stab a girl with its proboscis in the ass right so. in the ass and that scientist talks about that proboscis the entire time doesn't she yeah yeah she really does she really <laughs> does so three stars there nice no problem at all um the f- uh, the fucking departed right yeah boy mm-hmm. i got off my ass and and look more and more, I am being led by my inner voice when it comes to movies. I am simply letting mm-hmm. my fucking, you know, whatever's driving me, I'm letting it take the wheel. And I am watching what I am compelled to watch and not thinking too hard about it. I'd never seen The Departed. Which is uh, wild to me. Like, because yeah. you're such a fan of, like, the gangster genre and stuff like that. I enjoy I have assumed thriller. all this time that you had seen yes. it. One of my favorite movies of all time. I have seen it. God knows how many times. <laughs> and I didn't know this. I, I was yeah. delighted when he told me this after I'd seen it. But fuck me. What a great time. What so a great good. fucking time. Martin Scorsese, uh, go 15 minutes without playing Gimme Shelter Challenge. <laughs> can't do it. Can't you can't do fucking it. do it. Mm-mm. He fucking, he cannot go for an entire movie without playing Gimme Shelter. He played it twice in this fucking film. <laughs> Gimme Shelter. True. Twice. Two fucking times. Um, being charitable. <laughs> I, I, I kind of tried to give him a little leeway because it's Martin Scorsese. It's Marty. Marty. Right, yeah. Uh, he plays it once when DiCaprio is in prison. Mm-hmm. And he plays it again when DiCaprio is mired in the mob and in the corruption. So is he trying to thematically say he's yeah, trapped exactly. again? I don't yeah. know. Mm-hmm. But what a fun film with all the fun voices. The fucking departed. Can I just quickly the make a, a note on that? Like what you just yes. said. Because I was yes. thinking about this during Killers of the Flower Moon. I would like a documentary that is just about Martin Sc- Scorsese and music. Because clearly yep. that is a huge part of yep. the tableau of yes. his, his yes, films. Yes, yes. And it's like, you know, that's the thing that you don't necessarily think of as like a huge directorial choice. You know, there's people mm. who, who come up with scores for films yep. and all this kind of stuff. And certainly it's a thing they sign off on. But like he's, he clearly has like a vision yep. musically. did he direct a Stones concert video? He directed like a Rolling Stones live video, I believe. That sounds correct. Yes. <laughs> I'm not entirely I mean, positive, but that does so sound like I don't know like if music thing. is as big a deal for him as just the Rolling Stones. Well, that too. But like, I mean, there's no Rolling Stones in Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> but if the music is... If he could have fucking done it, he would have. He, he probably would have. But the music is so intentional in that. And I think about that in The Departed and stuff like that. Like, it's clearly... it's in the way that he thinks about his his movies and so i would love yep. to watch that but anyway go on oh mate i've said all i've got to say it's fucking great <laughs> right. i mean fantastic to see jack nicholson um literally playing a fucking a mobster a murdering fucking asshole racist fuckhead of a mobster but playing it in exactly the same way as he played jack napier in batman <laughs> it's the same he does the same fucking performance yes in batman as he did in killers of flower moon it was fucking great and the voices the accents are a lot of fun aren't they they hey, are fucking yeah. cocksucker fucking <laughs> fucking selling microprocessors <laughs> the fucking chinese so uh, much fun 
It is, uh, yeah. DiCaprio is a fucking god. He's amazing in this movie. Yeah. He's amazing in this movie, as is every fucker in it, right? Yeah, everyone. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows they're in a Marty Scorsese movie. Yeah. And they're all doing You even have book. my boy badge in there, which is always a plus. Yes, indeed. And <laughs> uh, everybody is... Uh, everybody shoots each other at the end. Everybody's a mole. Don't don't, don't spoil the departed. If, yeah, I'm going to spoil the departed. Everybody's a mole, right? <laughs> don't spoil the departed. You didn't see it till now. Let, let, no, let people have this. Because I was telling you about this after after you watched it, but the when I was coming back from South Africa, there was someone watching the departed a few rows in front of me. And... Uh, I got to the sort of twisty end part of the movie and just mm. watched as this person reacted to each <laughs> thing that happened with an, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. I, yeah, and it was, was glorious. Everyone was should have same. that moment. It's like, yes. you know, that is, watch The Departed and get that moment. It's beautiful. Yep. I'm not saying who the moles are, but it's basically <laughs> everyone. Stop <laughs> trying to spoil The it's Departed. Everyone is a mole. Um... <laughs> Yeah, fucking what a great laugh. What a great it is. movie. Yeah. Yeah, fucking cocksucker. So. <laughs> uh let me see what else. Doop do doop doop do 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 do. Um again, I I am I'm giving up control to the inner voice. Mm. And because beautiful pretty faced Christopher Nolan was up for BAFTAs this week uh for Oppenheimer, I I only I only saw Tenet the once, right? I saw Tenet the once in the cinema and yeah. Whether it was PTSD or what, I'd completely blanked it from my... I didn't form... Much like the guy in Memento, I didn't form any long-term <laughs> memories associated with Tenet. So I thought, right, I've got fucking five hours spare. I'll watch Tenet. And I'm so glad I watched Tenet. Wild. <laughs> what a fucking stylish movie, man. Stylish, but, I'll give it, yes. <laughs> right, Tenet is, is what happens when you just take fucking mad laddery and you take the reins off it is grand scale mad ladism right when christopher nolan just decides right i'm gonna be a fucking absolute mad lad for three and a half hours or however fucking long it is <laughs> that film man and i don't care that it doesn't make any fucking sense it does not make any sense in fact i think it probably does make sense but to minds beyond my own right <laughs> yeah i guess it is beyond my ken and my wit to piece together the events of Tenet. And I don't give a <laughs> shit. Because yeah. what the fuck happens on that screen is just sex. It is fucking... It is it is the dirtiest, sexiest fucking imagery in that film, man. Different fucking times going on in the same frame. Things are happening backwards. But they're also happening forwards. There's a guy in a fucking shop suit. And there's <laughs> surprises. And fuck me, man. Tenet just injected into my fucking per fucking glands, man. Stick a fucking <laughs> stick a proboscis in my head and just pump it into me. Tenet was great. I didn't understand a fucking minute of it, but goddamn, was it fun to look at. <laughs> I think I just don't like Christopher Nolan. I think the only Christopher Nolan movie that I've liked outside, like, I do. I liked. The first Batman, like when it came out, and then when I like yep. watched it again, like ten years later, I was like, "Oh, this is so shitty." Um, oh, mate, but up. the well, Batman Begins is shitty. It's that's, shitty. That's what, that's yeah, what you're it saying is to me. Absolutely is it? shitty. Yes, one hundred. Batman Begins. Batman Begins. It's a shit movie. Yes. Is fuck me, Carl. <laughs> the only on this cast a lot, but... 
the Black only Christopher oh. Nolan movie that I like, like, and have consistently liked is Inception. Other than yep. that, it's like when I rewatch them again or the first time, I'm just like, this is a waste there of you my go, time. Folks. Batman Begins is a shitty movie now. Listen, this is this has become a, a more common thought than you think. In fact, this was a whole thing on Blue Sky a couple months ago when uh, one of the users wrote like a long letterboxed review and posted it on yep. there. And then it was like basically the whole thread of everyone thinking that it had been an unpopular posi- position. But it turns out like... It's actually very common to hate. Oh, that, I, I, find, I find that movie. unbelievable. I find that <laughs> fucking absolutely unbelievable. Obviously, I, I I have never and will never forgive him for Dark Knight Rises. That is a shitty it movie. Is that is a shitty movie. Fucking dog egg. But <laughs> both Batman Begins and The Dark Knight are superb. Yeah, Super. no, not for, what, not what for me. Not for what me. What do we fall, Master Wayne? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Rub your chest. Your arms will take care of themselves. That I say no that to myself all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it has no basis is, in medicine yeah. at all. It simply isn't true. Warm your arms. No, but I, I think about it constantly. <laughs> Every time it. I see yeah. someone wearing like one of those vests that doesn't have sleeves on it, I just think of Ra's al Ghul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. Um, let me see. What else? I think that the was departed. your list. From what I recall. I can't see him on the camera selling the microprocessors. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm excited watched... for you for a lifetime of watching that movie over and over again and enjoying it Oh, I'm it going back to it. I'm going to go back to it, yes. Uh, yeah. we, we watched we watched a lovely, lovely, lovely fucking horror movie called You Won't Be Alone. Yes. I mean, this is another one that, again, it wasn't really for me, but it was a good movie. I think you suggested that as a gift to me, didn't did. you? Because yeah. you knew that I would love it and love it. I did. <laughs> uh, where are we? We're in Macedonia, is that correct? Yeah, Macedonia. Macedonia, rural, uh, farmland, kind of uh, olden days Macedonia. Yeah, I have no idea what time period this is, nope, but nor a I, long but time ago. Carrying pails of milk on yeah. the back, think goats. Belief in witchcraft. Witchcraft, straw bedding, uh, and a witch, a witch kidnaps a young girl i believe well she doesn't so much kidnap her yeah she marks her is give yeah 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 yes basically the mom is like take her when she's 16 not now exactly makes a deal (laughs) with a witch and when you make a deal with a witch that's only going to go one way you got to pay up and the girl kind of adopts the persona of people who she kills yes throughout her life and on it, on the surface, that sounds all right. Fair enough. That's a, a ropey old horror trope. It might be fun. It might not be. But that that framing is used as a means to explore the fucking human condition, man. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It's it's not a, framed in a like a horror-y way. No. You know, somehow not. it becomes beautiful the way she takes yes, on. Yes, and it is. It is these people thought-provoking, and it, it it makes you kind of you know the the fucking the taste of water, the kiss of a man. Yeah. Uh, just what it is to be a fucking human in Macedonia at some point in the past. Yeah. Um, we experience every life that this girl inhabits or takes on the fucking skin of. We experience it anew through fresh eyes. And it's more, I don't know, man, what to fucking compare it to? Um, <laughs> I'm, yeah. <sighs> That's t- I mean, it has the witch vibes in certain ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's it kind of stands in sort of a league of its own. Um, yeah, 
I don't know what great, it reminds me of. Great to see Numi Rapace. Great to see of her. Course. Always great to see her. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Numi Rapace feel- is such like a an interesting actress. I was thinking about this when I looked this up, but it's like. Numi Rapace being in a movie does not mm. tell you at all what language no, it's going to be in, where, it where it's going to be set. It's like she just nope. pops up everywhere. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Last She'll, time I saw her, it was yeah. Lamb. Yeah, I was going to say like Lamb before that. Like there's she. Yeah, she shows up everywhere. You she and she has a type of movie clearly that like she yeah. drifts towards as well, yeah. for sure. She's yeah. not one of those like I want to be in a blockbuster kind of people she mm. loves like a meditative uh you know slow thoughtful yep. kind of movie like you won't be alone so yeah yep. it was one that i didn't i mean i don't even want to say i didn't enjoy this one i think i i enjoyed it i definitely like towards the end started to zone out uh-huh. <laughs> you know and that's like a function of it having subtitles and um, being very quiet and things yeah. like that, like it's not, you know, a heavy dialogue movie or anything like that. So nah, eventually my brain just kind of turned off. But, uh, you yep. know, but if you're I, someone who, who yeah. doesn't necessarily like subtitles and I know you don't, not yeah. a problem. Because right. Yeah. Mostly it's, it's a visual movie. It conveys its yeah. story visually. Also, you know, you... the subtitles are very bad. <laughs> yeah. This movie. I don't know if it was just the copy we watched or what, but it was like near unintelligible at times and sometimes <laughs> i thought like oh is it just because she hasn't learned like it's the way she her inner monologue is because she hasn't learned to talk and then other people would talk that way and i was like mm. oh okay no it's just badly translated uh but yes. it doesn't super matter it's not really the point i i kind of think that i could have turned the subtitles off and still yeah you got get what's going on you know it's it's it, it tells everything visually it, it's mm. it's a it's a very visual movie, and I deeply enjoyed it. It's it's right up my street. It's my jam. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that was what I said. I was like, I think you're going to love this. I might hate it, yes. but you're going to love this. Uh, you so, right. yeah. You Won't Be Alone. I think we both recommend it, though. You Won't Be Alone. You Won't Be Disappointed. Hey, look at that. that. You should be in marketing. I've said l- many times that if just one time we could get quoted on a movie poster. <laughs> right. Uh, but I guess then we'd, we'd need to promote ourselves first, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's the first step. And we, you know, we're three and a half years in and we have not started doing that. <laughs> no. So will it happen one day? Probably not. But nope. Nope. oh boy, everyone look out <laughs> if we ever <laughs> decide to make one solitary effort to promote this podcast. <laughs> Yep. we're kind of we're kind of waiting for you guys to do it yeah will you guys just you know go ahead and start a campaign for us that'd be super Please. awesome That'd be wicked. maybe then we'd, uh, we'd release episodes on the same day right yeah now. right <laughs> well this week i had a couple of good ones i watched dream scenario like i said um i watched the holdovers waste of time don't understand what the, the hype is about on that one um i don't i, I don't see any reason you would like it either I'm gonna watch it. I'm gonna. I'm gonna watch it, but only because you're the only person who said that. Interestingly, this is one of those right. things where I think like people, you know, they went and saw it in theaters and they loved it, like four or five star reviews of this. Yep. And then in the past couple of days, I've noticed more people watching it at home who have said exactly the same thing <laughs> that oh, okay. I have about it. So it feels like it's your who are the early adopters of a movie yeah, like that yeah, 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 versus yeah. then like when everybody else gets a hold of it, it's a little more like. Eh. I don't see it as one that has a lot in there for you. It's a very, it's low plot, slice of life, sentimental, extremely sentimental kind of movie um, where, you know, it's basically 
white men doing white men things with like a a black lady to move them along in their emotional <laughs> okay. growth kind I mean, of situation. I like, I like Little Miss Sunshine. I like Sideways. It's not like that. Those have plots. No? Okay, okay. <laughs> doesn't okay. really have that. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's two hours and 20 minutes long with Ooh, like, yeah, eh, with eh. like 30 minutes of things happening in it. Whack, whack, oops. Um, it has, yeah, it's very, it's such like a white dude movie. There's like a point in it where they like meet like the teenager at the center of this meets like a girl his own age. And mm. even though he's like a sleaze and all this kind of stuff, she catches him looking down her shirt and all this kind of stuff. She's like attracted to him and kisses him. And it's like, oh, okay. oh such male fantasy bullshit. Like, <laughs> that does not ugh. happen. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> if tell only. You. <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, it's just, it was a waste of time. If the performances yeah. are good. It's just not worth your time, in my opinion. Um, okay. With Scream and Chat, we watched a movie called The Oracle, which is also kind of a waste of time, except practical effects that are great. Um, yep. You know, I don't even, at this point, like, when we watch Scream and Chat movies, there's always a degree to which we're, like, not paying attention to it. But it was definitely confusing. When it ended, everyone was like, what happened? But what you, what sticks with you is that there are some really good gory moments in it. So the Oracle is one that you don't need to watch, but if it were like you turned on Shutter and it was the automatic thing that came up on Shutter TV and you had nothing else yeah. to do, you're gonna yeah. get some good, uh, good effects out of that. Okay, okay. But the thing I really liked that I watched yeah. this week was House of Wax, the original, um, okay. which I had never seen before. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I have not. Yeah, it's from 19- Vincent Price? Vincent Price, yeah. yeah early yeah, yeah. 50s, this came out. And it was 3D. I did not know this. <laughs> and then a couple of sort of tricks happened in there that I was like, this feels like a 3D movie. And then it turned out it, it is. Uh, um, kind of blue and green 3D. No, blue not like red? that. Like, well, I mean, it probably was at the time, but like, mm. it doesn't, it's not, the print isn't like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sure, sure, sure. I, I don't think you could put on 3D glasses and just watch the version that was on TCM. You'd have to get, The like, back a, of my mind is telling me that's called Anaglyph 3D. Sure. I know there's a name for it, but I don't remember. So I think I'll, that's I'll take 3D. that. Um, but yeah, The House of Wax is like super fun and creepy. Uh, basically, Vincent Price uh, plays this guy who makes figures out of wax, but mm. um, he has like an unscrupulous uh, landlord who's like, hey, if we burn this whole place down, like we'll get insurance money for it. You can rebuild somewhere else. And Vincent Price is like, these wax figures are my friends. I don't want to do that. Uh, and so the landlord's like, fine. And he just burns the place down with Vincent Price in it, <laughs> trying to kill him. Uh, but he survives. And uh, there is basically this sort of murder storyline going on where you're like, okay, there's some guy slinking around murdering all these people who are connected to this. Huh. Why? Uh, and meanwhile, Vincent Price has started up a new wax museum full of figures that look alarmingly familiar to people hmm. who have been murdered. Scratch his head. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun, sort of a, uh, just very creepy. I mean, the wax figures are so horrifying <laughs> throughout this. And uh, yeah, it's a fun little, like, trying to figure out, like, how he's doing it, what's going on. Um, you know, there's sort of these stalkery elements of it, home invasion elements of it. Uh, lots of things that I really like. And Vincent Price. Yeah. So, and 3D tricks as you well. Know, um, 
got to be about five years back now. We took the boys to Madame Tussauds, yeah? <laughs> uh, Owen was just about walking. Owen was still on reins. And Peter would have been like five or six. Reins? Yeah, like reins that you have a toddler on so they don't run off. Like a kid leash? If you will. Okay, I, I can picture it now. There you go. And Peter wouldn't go fucking near any of the models. Like <laughs> I am with Pete. But, you know, they, they, they had waxwork of One Direction there, right? And sure. he fucking loved One Direction at the time. Wouldn't <laughs> go near them. He Mm-mm. spent the entire time hiding between mine or Laura's legs. <laughs> that he wouldn't is stand next to Michael me. Jackson. There yeah. are photos of him, in fact, just looking super uneasy <laughs> the entire day. I was having a great time in the Star Wars exhibit. Yes, <laughs> fucking yes. And Pete wouldn't fucking peep out from behind uh, either me or Laura. It was hilarious. Yeah, I always had like a, a skepticism of things like that as a child. I mean, I still do. I d- it's like walking down Hollywood Boulevard. If I see the people dressed in like costumes as yeah, things, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah, like yeah. immediately back away. I just don't like it. I don't. Yeah. Don't trust things trying to trick me into thinking they're yes. somebody or something else. I don't like it at do you, all. So I are you not be, a fan of like immersive theater then kind of? Like, what do you mean? Well, you know, like, um, like immersive carnivals. And... Oh, no, 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 okay. no, 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 okay. absolutely okay. not. <laughs> if anything interacts with me, I'm out. I do not want to be a Got part you. of the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In any way. That fucking fourth wall in place, thank you. Yeah. I remember going to the circus with my brother Zach as a kid and a clown, like, you know, coming somewhere near me and me just crawling over Zach's back. (laughs) Like, nope, 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 nope. This is, that's not happening. Do not perceive me, please. (laughs) Uh, That's not your brother who's gone insane, is it? Oh, that's, that's the one. Yeah, that's my terrible, insane brother. Uh, I mean, they're all insane. He's just the the bad insane one. (laughs) (laughs) but he did once take me to the circus which i hated (laughs) damn not good uh yeah that so that's everything for me shall we get into the nitty-gritty the deep yes let's do it so uh let me just (laughs) replay my takeaways from last week so uh week one of our journey was all about the uh, just the the colonialist playbook of our respective nations. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And last week, a closer look at. See, what I the question I asked last week was why the fuck why has anti-Semitism been so rife throughout all of fucking mm-hmm. history? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, ever since the kind of the expulsion of the Jews in the in the fucking prehistoric times BC, the fucking diaspora. Jews have settled everywhere across the fucking globe, pretty much, and yeah. anti-Semitism everywhere. Has followed. Everyone has hated has them. Yes. Followed them, mm-hmm. and that is that remains insane to me. That 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 yes. remains something I just cannot square away. I can't fucking work out why and where and how and and how it it it, it continues to bubble up. You right. know, yeah. there was um, you know, as you'd expect, this question has been asked on on. Radio 4 quite often of late and mm. uh, there was an interview with I forget the guy's name but a Holocaust historian who gives kind of educational talks and and you know runs uh, a kind of a Holocaust education foundation and I'm paraphrasing but his 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 you know his his line was along the lines of we've made the mistake of thinking 
that we can simply tell the story of the Holocaust and trust that people will learn from it. Right, exactly. But apparently not. Right. Yeah, 100%. It's, mm. uh, I mean, and that's obviously what we've been going through here is how complicated this is. And it speaks to like how, you know, when we were sort of recapping or whatever before we even started today that you're like, I'm still struggling, you know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. no matter yeah. how much we talk. And we have this and one more to talk about it that will hopefully – um, add more clarity to that. But there is a d- degree to which one of the fundamental problems here is exactly that. And and what I talked about last week with Naomi Klein's book, with yes. the way that we talk about the Holocaust um, tends to be a, a re-traumatizing instead of a remembering, you know, yeah. and, and something that, that keeps a wound open without really teaching us about what are the lessons that we can get from this? And and how do we move on as a society from the kind of hatred that breeds something like this? How do we say mm. never again? Well, we can't simply look at it as then something that is this continuous open wound that we pull up and use to, you know, put violence onto other people and things like that. You know, we have to figure out a way to remember the trauma of the Holocaust and then apply it you know mm-hmm. why did this happen what were other people doing as a result what were the policies that were in place that caused them to be able to do this and we've talked about like you know hitler himself saying that the brits and the u.s taught him how to do this stuff you know and to a degree that was rhetorical right he's pushing yeah. off the responsibility like hey i'm not a monster i'm just doing what you all do but at the same time, he was also right. <laughs> you know, he was following colonialist playbooks from other places. He was following the anti-Semitism that had been around since antiquity. He is, you know, using all of these things that we have done elsewhere. The dehumanization of people, you know, thinking about a group of people as invasive cockroaches, as non-human mm. um, in order to justify getting rid of them. Like all of this stuff he didn't come up with. He didn't invent it. Uh just turned it into something on a scale that is unimaginable. Uh, what was that book of No McLean's called again, please? Doppelganger. And it's great. Okay. I think you'd love it. You should definitely read Doppelganger. Um, but, you know, all of this to say that, like, what we're looking at here is, like, the conditions, you know, all the stuff that makes it so that we get to the point, like, we're discussing, we discussed, you know, uh, about the Holocaust and how Jews learn about it and what we learn about it and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, last week and now we're looking at how like we didn't learn those lessons um, that needed to be learned and for a lot of political reasons (laughs) you know um, a lot of the reasons that we uh, continue to repeat these sins of the past is political Um, it's ideological it's religious it's all kinds of things but um, it's a matter of us sort of prioritizing things outside of the humanity Mm -hmm. of people when it comes down to it we have a lot of interests you know um and humanity is very low on our list of priorities um Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the things i want to sort of people to take out of this is is that idea of prioritizing humanity um and, and thinking about things as not existing in a vacuum the holocaust didn't exist in a vacuum of course they didn't go they didn't start with concentration camps of course right exactly and it's it a lot of that involves people much like where we are now um, accepting that certain things uh, are allowable 
to be as a means to an end that we might look at something and go, oof, that is ugly business. But, you know, the Jews need their homeland or we need mm. our oil or blah, 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 blah. The things that we will allow and not get involved with because we see it as a means to an end. And we don't want to know. We don't want to involve ourselves by knowing. Um, but dear listener, <laughs> you are you're going to know. And then you have to make decisions about which kind of person you want to be when you have that knowledge. Are you going to be the person who sat there and was like, oh, that's ugly, but it is what it is, or the kind of person who later on they look back and <laughs> you go, man, they were, they fought that with every part of their being. So you know where I want you to land, but let's, uh, let's get into why the U.S. justifies this and why we have this support uh, for Israel. So let me get that kind of crystal. Yeah. I, I, in fact, you know what? Fucking hell, Bernie Sanders himself was on uh, Radio 4 this very morning hmm. touching on this. So the US financially and ideologically supports Israel, yes? Yes. Okay, okay. And Just we are going clear. to get into that. Yeah, that's a, okay. <laughs> as a log line for this, that's exactly it. We um, financially and ideologically support Israel for a variety of reasons. So okay. I want to talk to you today about the multifaceted reasons why the U.S. maintains such a vested interest in Israel while our attitude towards the rest of the Middle East is largely, you know, kill it with fire. Yeah. Uh, and to be clear... I'm only going to scratch the surface of any of this because the books that I've been reading about this are like literally 650 pages long each, you know, so I can't possibly like really get all the way deep into everything. This is all of these episodes are a survey and hopefully they cause you, the listener, um, and you, Mark, of course, to to want to look into it further for yourselves. As I mentioned last week, bookseller Ryan put together a shoppable list of the books I've been re referencing. So the link is in the description of the episode or on the blog if you want to buy them and read them yourself. And of course, the blog has all the other links, as does the description, to other stuff that I uh, read as well, along with the books. Um and before, because this is relevant to what you, we were just talking about, before I really get started on this, I want to point out the big elephant in the room of why we were so gung-ho about the creation of Israel and perpetual support of it, and that is anti-Semitism. Uh, we knew that the Jews had been victims of horrors and atrocities beyond our wildest imaginations in Europe, and that they needed to be safe from that. But we also did not want Jews in the United States. Uh, we set up quota systems uh, during the war, basically like, oh, we can accept a certain amount, but beyond that, you are mm. on your own. <laughs> um, and we didn't want more than what we sort of allowed at the time, even though there were obviously a lot more who were trying to escape and to rebuild their lives after the war and all of that kind of stuff. We didn't want them. Uh, and so this was a way we could support them without actually bringing them here <laughs> to our country. Um, so I, I just kind of want to get that out of the way right from the jump, that the U.S., like much of the world, uh, has always been anti-Semitic. And bolstering Israel came in part out of that anti-Semitism. It was not out of the goodness of our hearts and our care <laughs> for the Jews. It was uh, like, we recognize a terrible thing has happened to them, but also we don't want them here. Let's make that somebody else's problem. Uh, just super quickly worth pointing out, it was widely reported uh, this week that just in London, just in London, hmm. anti-Semitic hate crimes since October 
has risen 1,350%. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the statistics around that, because Islamophobia has leapt as well, but it's a smaller leap. And one of the Mm. things I find fascinating about that is, you know, the reason the Islamophobia leap is smaller uh, is because there was so much more, like, outright Islamophobia before. Mm. And so it's part of that is anti-Semitism catching up to how much uh, Muslims were already victims of hate crimes constantly all the time. Um, But there's there's a a surge. Um, It's also, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out about that. And I don't want to excuse anti-Semitism by any stretch of the imagination because it's abhorrent. Um, But also that, like, when it comes to the Islamophobic hate crimes that have been happening, lots more uh, Muslims have been, like, killed or paralyzed or things like that. Like, in America, you know, three Muslim teenagers were shot, one of them paralyzed. A Muslim child who was, like, six years old was murdered. Um, You know, there's been multiple other murders of Muslims uh, since October 7th in America, Mm -hmm. where there have not been murders or shootings of Jews in the United States. Um, And so there is a degree to which the like response, like what kind of hate crimes are being committed uh, are very different uh, depending on who that group is. At the same time, like, you know, we had here in Tennessee the other day, like a full on neo-Nazi march um, where these guys were, you know, doing the little hiles and all that kind of stuff. So, and like, they were just walking, the police weren't harassing them or anything like that. So you can see how like, this was Tennessee just a few days ago. Um, and so you can see how much like anti-Semitism is so rampant that Mm. they don't even have to fear someone's going to interfere with it. Like they can just parade through the streets, uh, you know, doing Nazi shit and... (laughs) no one gives them any trouble uh so yeah it's a huge huge issue um and one thing that i always think it's important to to frame around this too is that zionism and judaism are two different things and yes of course there are zionist jews but they are not the same and no one should you know be victims of hate crimes even if they are zionists Uh, but the equating of those two things is dangerous. And that's one of these big problems is that people respond to being anti-Israeli government by then being hateful towards Jews. Mm-hmm. And like, that's that's doing it wrong. <laughs> that's sure. absolutely doing it wrong. So, you know, I don't think anyone who listens to Jack of All Graves is the kind of person who would make that kind of leap, but just FYI. <laughs> taking out what you know Netanyahu's government is doing on regular everyday Jews is like deeply misguided um so yeah there's that (laughs) we certainly will not be um contributing to that but uh let's start here even though chronologically I'm gonna jump around so this is not gonna be like a linear journey it's gonna kind of circle around to these points over and over um but what do you know about the cold war uh well you might be astounded to learn scant okay fair enough i don't know this could have gone either way really cuba yes cuba 
No, no, no. Oh, it's Russia. Yeah. U.S. <laughs> okay. and Russia. I'm thinking of Cuba. I was like, okay, crisis. well, I mean, like, Cuba's certainly a part of this whole thing, but certainly not mm. what people think is the central element of, of the Cold War. Yeah, we're talking about basically, like, the the Soviet Union and the spread of communism globally, right? And the particularly the United States doing everything in their power to prevent the spread of communism. Um, and meanwhile, of course, there's the developing of nuclear uh, nuclear capabilities between both countries and the fear of what that's going to do, uh, the space race. There's like all kinds of stuff yeah, wrapped yeah, yeah, yeah. up in yes, the Cold yes. War. All of this being like a, a fight for either the supremacy of capitalism or the supremacy of communism. And there can only be one. We cannot have these things coexist with each other as global systems. You know, the idea being like as a capitalist nation who, you know, we are now <laughs> decades into our uh, sort of imperialist uh, mandate, we're trying to take over the world when it comes to the financial system. And mm. so the idea of communism spreading inherently uh, breaks up our interests and threatens our interests as capitalists throughout the world. So. It's really important to understand how much U.S. foreign policy has been shaped by our attempts at keeping communism at bay around the world. We've staged coups, supported dictators, and engaged in disastrous proxy wars trying to stop the spread of communism. The most famous, obviously, being Vietnam, which mm -hmm. we lost horribly <laughs> and uh, really destabilized that entire region, all for the purpose of trying to stop the spread of communism in Asia. And as far back as the 1910s, communism in the Middle East was a concern for the U.S., becoming one of the complications that both made us unsure of whether we should support the partition of Palestine, as well as ultimately the reason we became gung-ho supporters of Israel. Now, European Jews actually brought communism with them to Israel. I mentioned last week that, you know, as Naomi Klein writes in her book, like a lot of Jews are actually socialists and communists, um, especially sort of the foundational thinkers, including Marx himself, um, because having been persecuted <laughs> pretty much throughout history, um, they were very much for a political ideology that did not pit people against each other over mm. things like your religion and your ethnic background and things like that. That basically said, there's no war but class war. The only thing we have to worry about is, you know, who owns the money, who owns the means of production, things like that. So there were a lot of Jewish communists and they brought communism to Israel with them. So they first uh, formed the Palestine Communist Party in 1919. So remember, of course, there is no Israel yet at that mm -hmm. point, which is why it's called and Where that. was this? Where was this party formed? Palestine. Okay. <laughs> Palestine Communist Party in Got Palestine, it. 1919. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and that's now become the Communist Party of Israel. Um, and they're actually, at this point, one of the loudest bodies in Israel that advocates for Palestinian rights. So they've maintained that pretty much this whole time. Um, but it was um, it was very complicated uh, in the early to mid 20th century, particularly because the Soviets actually recognized the state of Israel. And thus that kind of left the Arab communist parties to fall in line with that, um, despite much of the rest of the Arab world's pushback against colonialism, which was such a central part of this, obviously. 
The concern for the U.S. was that the Soviet Union was not only trying to spread communism in the Arab world, but that they were also going to fuck with our oil interests. And I'm going to get into that. (laughs) But as George Kennan said at the time, the basic motive of recent Soviet action in northern Iran is probably not need for oil itself, but apprehension of potential foreign penetration in that area, coupled Mm. with the concern for prestige. The oil in northern Iran is important not as something Russia needs, but as something that might be dangerous for everyone else to exploit. In other words, Russians didn't need the oil, but yeah. they knew we wanted it. Sure, uh, sure, sure. So it was, you know, they were probably <clears throat> going to come in and fuck with it. That was our concern. Um, as with everything this week, I'm oversimplifying, but to su- suffice to say that while communism was for a time a so-called threat in the Arab world, it never got a foothold. But this is why it's important, according to author Irene L. Genzier. Quote, the United States was replacing British economic and strategic power in the Middle East. It was preparing for a radically more costly approach to foreign economic policy. It was moving toward the resurrection and final reintegration of German and Japanese power in an anti-Soviet alliance, as well as an American-led world economy. It was transforming its intervention against left revolution into a standard policy and response. Which is a lot, but basically the gist is we were forging this whole anti-communist, anti-left alliance in order to get a stronghold on the global economy and thus squashing any left revolution anywhere Mm -hmm. in the world became not just a significant part of our foreign policy, but the standard. See leftists, squash leftists, period. Yep, that I get. Yeah. (laughs) As Zionist supporters put it at the time, quote, the Jews have been a great progressive force in Palestine. They can serve the whole Middle East as a progressive westernizing influence in the development of modern industry, scientific agriculture, education and political democracy. They can be an outpost of Western culture without being an outpost of Western imperialism. The only problem is convincing those darn Arabs to go along with it. Truman's chief of the Division of Near East Affairs, Gordon Merriam, labeled the Middle East a highly dangerous trouble spot in 1945, explaining, according to Genzier, that the USSR was threatening Turkey and Iran, France had failed to put down Syria and Lebanon's independence movements, and Israel and Palestine were a powder keg ready to explode into violence and disorder between Jews and Arabs. And in the tradition of McKinley and his ilk trying to make it seem like America isn't actually imperialist... Miriam thought of us simply as a protector, helping out people who were, for the most part, ignorant, poverty-stricken, and diseased. So by implementing plans for the development of the region, we were actually just like being a good big brother to Palestine. Mm, like, we're yeah, going to yeah. help them out. <laughs> they're, they're like starving and diseased and uneducated. We're going to go in there and we're going to develop it and everything's going to be cool. And on top of all that, they have the thing that's at the root of pretty much all of our intervention in the Middle East. Oil. As Genzier puts it, Middle East policy was oil policy. As far back as the early to mid 20th century. And this oil policy was in the hands of a small elite group. Essentially, a bunch of white guys who went to elite universities and just had disproportionate access to the Secretary of State and President compared to the average Joe. It's a lot like what we talked about with Hawaii, like it was overthrown by like a bunch of people who owned uh-huh. Dole and shit like that. Like the people who were like developing Middle East foreign policy weren't politicians or anyone who really had 
uh, any reason to be a part of that. They were just rich people with stakes and oil who could get into the room with the president and things mm-hmm. like that. As Miriam put it when it came to our relationship with Saudi Arabia, it was important that it stayed in the hands of those following the paths of democratic civilization rather than those of Eastern dictatorships. And this, Genzier writes, basically became the unexamined but firm basis of U.S. Middle East policy. According to Mariam, in Saudi Arabia, where the oil resources constitute a stupendous resource of strategic power and one of the greatest material prizes in world history, a a concession covering this oil is nominally in American control. As such, the U.S. would hand over about $10 million a year to Saudi Arabia for the purpose of ensuring a reasonable security to American interest in the vast Arabian oil fields. You have a question. Was this was this ever explicitly stated to who? By the US. By the US. I mean, I, these it, are all quotes from US political like figures. This is okay. like Miriam was our connection to the Middle East. Like these are government people who are saying this stuff. So yeah. This is all said out loud. This isn't uncovered in okay, like okay, okay. some sort of thing later on. Like, no, this is we knew. This was what we were doing. <laughs> okay. Um I mean, the degree to which the American public knew or cared is a whole other. Yeah, thing, I think right? that's kind of. I think that's kind of what I'm asking. Yeah. Because it's it seems quite nakedly. The agenda seems quite quite upfront, you know. It the, is the the kind of the anti-communist agenda and the mm-hmm. the kind of the resource-hungry kind of way mm-hmm. that this that the the conducted business was it positioned to the american people in more kind of uh easier terms i guess was mm-hmm. it positioned in a kind of a was there was there a kind of not with the was the american interest was the the avarice of it all was that was there i don't know was it was it kind of phrased differently to the public right. then when they yeah. were asking questions about what our involvement in Israel was. Well, I'll put it to you this way. Let's think about this in modern terms, right? Mm. What do you know about what BP is doing around the world? Oh, jack shit. Are they hiding it from you? Yeah, okay, fine, fine. fine. <laughs> like, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? Is that like, I, I will get to sort of what like, why well average mm. Americans like care about this because it's not these reasons right sure um and it's the same thing like like say when we go to war if you ask americans like what did we go to iraq for what did we go to afghanistan for like americans would be like to fight for freedom right yeah um, yep yep that's what how did we about. do yeah. that how yeah. like what did going to afghanistan do for our freedoms right like what was threatened here that's that's an idea. That's not a mm-hmm. real thing. You can't fight for freedom. Um, so, like, government interests when it comes to foreign policy is always very different than the people's interests, uh-huh. right? Like, we, I mean, that's the same thing with things in World War II and stuff like that. Like, have you seen Casablanca? No. Oh, you've got to see Casablanca. This is, let your, your heart, which is leading you towards so many classics... Mm. Let it lead you to Casablanca, which is definitely one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I used to watch it four times a semester teaching it and like it still never gets old. Um, But like that movie was propaganda. The point of that movie was to 
by using this love story sort of romantically make people understand why we should interfere in a war in Europe. Like mm-hmm. why why are we going <laughs> to why are we going to interfere with what's going on in Germany and stuff like that? Like that has nothing to do with us. Well, let's have this romantic story that gives you, yeah, sure. you know, this reason. So when you say like, did people know, did they try to cover it up? The government didn't really have to cover I see. this stuff up, you know, and there's no 24 hour news cycle or anything like that. But, you know, the government's interests in any conflict are not the same thing that the people are taught is the point. Yep. Right. Okay. Um, but that's a really good, <laughs> good question. Um, so yeah, this is this is all stuff on the record. This is our government. This is their policies towards this stuff. Um, so I won't get into it at length. But we established various relationships with other Middle Eastern countries like Iraq, Iran, Bahrain, and Kuwait based around preserving our oil interests. If we had to give them some money here and there, or stage a coup, or make certain concessions to these countries, so be it. The most important thing was the oil. This also meant that the U.S. encouraged and supported missionaries from the U.S. to head over to the Middle East and do medical and educational work. Uh, For those of us who came from evangelical backgrounds and have reckoned with what the fuck we were doing as missionaries, we know that missionary work is actually extremely political. Missionaries don't just like read the Bible (laughs) to people and be like, you know, now now you know, sweet, you're saved. I'm going to go home now. Someone's Uh, funding them. Right. They're funded. Absolutely. And they then tend to try to like civilize the people that they encounter. Um, You know, they change their whole way of life. They cut their hair. They change what they wear. They teach them the ways of capitalism. It's a great way to get people from different cultures to be totally on board with American imperialism. Send some missionaries first to tell them that this is actually God's will. Missionary influence aside, the introduction of U.S. and British interests into Palestine reshaped the economic landscape of the region. Quote, the largest employer of urban wage labor in Palestine until World War II was the Palestine Railways. Its Arab Jewish workforce peaked at 7,800 in 1943. Consolidated refineries in Haifa began production in 1940 and employed over 2,000 Arab Jewish and British manual and clerical workers. By 1944, there were 100,000 Arab non-agricultural wage workers, about 35,000 of whom were employed at British military bases, along with 15,000 Jewish workers. So the end of the war saw total destabilization of Middle Eastern economies as these services were no longer lucrative anymore or even necessary in a lot of cases, uh, leading to labor strikes and communist and socialist sentiments. <laughs> in fact, communists led the labor movements in Iraq, uh, unionizing the oil workers and fomenting pushback against the low wages that they were being paid. And similar uprisings happened in various Middle Eastern countries being exploited for oil to varying degrees of success. So all of this is happening in the 1940s, right? Immediately post-war, you've already got all these Middle Eastern nations being exploited for oil and trying to Mm -hmm. push back against, um, you know, largely Britain, but, you know, the United States, France, anyone who had sort of a controlling stake there. But what concerned the U.S. government was not the rights of the workers, but how pissing off Arabs might threaten their oil interests. Opponents of partition said U.S. support for the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine could undermine relations with the Arab world, 
provide an opening for the Soviet Union to extend its power and influence, and lead to loss of access to Middle East oil at a time when they needed it for European and Japanese reconstruction. To which the Brits were basically like, yeah, okay, fuck off. <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't care what that's going to do to your relationships with the Arabs. Uh, and the U.S. was like, okay, fine, but if we're going to do this, Jew- Jews and Arabs need to both have a say in this process. That'll keep things more stable in this region. We didn't really actually follow through on that. It sounded good politically, but the U.S. didn't really give a shit about Arab self-determination or Arabs in general. And Truman went ahead and endorsed partition. And it soon became clear that the goal was to eliminate Arabs from Palestine entirely. In 1941, the director of the Jewish National Fund, Joseph Weitz, wrote, Except perhaps for Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Old Jerusalem, we must not leave a single village. Not a single tribe. Christ. Yeah. Christ. <laughs> Not great. How are you going to do that? Ugh. Ask them nicely to go, I think. Um, and according to Genzier, just two weeks after the Declaration of Isra- Israeli Independence, a committee was formed to implement the plan that led to the actual destruction of Palestinian villages. The CIA, for their part, was like, Hey, the Zionists are definitely not going to be satisfied with what they've been given in the partition and are going to want to take over everything. Uh, how, this, talk to me about how the partition was split. Talk to me about what um, the, I mean, the division I'm not a maps land. person, okay, okay, so okay, okay, this okay. is going to be difficult for me. I think the, what the book said was something like 40% went to Arabs and 60 to Jews. Right. I'm not positive, though. Um, but keeping in mind that the Jews are a huge minority in this area, they were given a lot yeah, of land yeah, yeah. Okay, already. Okay, okay. Uh, just not as much as they wanted. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the, the CIA said that like the the Zionists wanting more land was going to lead to massive Arab resistance. And when the Jews inevitably started taking over Arab land forcibly, the Arabs are going to be framed as the aggressors, even if they're just trying to defend their land and fight back against poverty and famine. This is not me saying this. This is the CIA (laughs) saying Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. Uh, And this is potentially going to be a shit show for America. As Genzier wrote, quote, in February of 1948, the CIA once again reviewed the situation in Palestine, predicting a permanent conflict resulting from the incompatible aims of Zionists and Palestinian and Arab nationalists. Go figure. Mm. (laughs) It's rare that you'll hear me give props to the CIA, but they got that one in one. They nailed exactly what was going to happen. But despite waffling back and forth on whether or not we'd support the partition and trying to mastermind other plans that would keep us from screwing up our relationships with Arab nations we relied on for oil, the partition happened anyway. And we had to figure out how to work with that because oil. Even as the government watched in horror as Arabs were forcibly expelled from the land and worse, massacred by the hundreds. So, again, very similar to what's happening now. It was like, okay, we have to, we're trying to figure out, like, how to keep things stable here. Meanwhile, the Israelis are just wholesale murdering and displacing the Arabs. But, like, we can't say anything? So what do we do now? Oh, mm. this is a problem. Um, what began here in the late 1940s was the U.S. practice of publicly denouncing the violence on both sides, while doing nothing practical about the problem that was causing it. Yeah, yeah. Classic. Yeah. Our hands just tied because of our political and economic interests there. But our commitment to Israel as more than just a place that's advantageous to us because of oil intensifies, as I said at the start, with the Cold War. 
when, in 1967, Israel defeated several Arab states pretty much single-handedly and began occupying a swath of new territory that included Gaza and the West Bank. The U.S. had been worried that this would expand into a Cold War proxy battle, which is like, again, if you don't know a ton about the Cold War, the thing about that is that we weren't we didn't fight Russia directly. We fought proxy wars, which were like Vietnam, you know, things in which we fought a war somewhere else to stop the influence of the Soviet Union instead of directly firing a nuke at the Soviet Union. Um, And so they were concerned like we were going to have of proxy wars pop up um, in the Middle East uh, as a result of this. But then Israel managing to nip this in the bud without any help made us go, now hold on, (laughs) they're an even better ally than we gave them credit for. Because we were using all of our resources at this point to fuck up Vietnam. Like we had no Mm -hmm. energy to also fight a war in the Middle East at this moment. So now we realize like we have someone there who will fight this battle for us in the Middle East. Yeah, okay. That is okay. really advantageous for us. Uh, so this is when we really ratcheted up our aid to Israel, and more importantly, our supply of arms to them. Uh, some of them we sold to them, but mostly we just gave them weapons. Uh, by the 80s, uh, or I skipped a part, sorry, we gave them bank loans at super low rates to develop further weaponry. Um, And by the 80s, we were teaming up for R&D on war toys with them. And it was in 1999 that Bill Clinton signed the first of three 10-year memorandums committing to provide billions in military aid annually. Adjusted for inflation, Israel has received about $300 billion in economic and military assistance from the United States since its founding, making it the largest recipient of our aid by almost $150 billion, which is insane <laughs> a place that's only been around for 75 years all of which and this this is this is making sense all of which is a way of furthering american interests without mm-hmm. actually right without you know, any any kind of loss of american life exactly they're our proxy yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah, it yeah, like yeah, okay. it's our it's our little middle east proxy uh mm. that we send our money to and things like that but yeah we don't have to have our soldiers there we don't have to have you know a, a direct um yeah. which as we're trying not to be imperialist looks great we are not in the middle east we don't have a colony in the middle east we have an independent state that we just give money to um, and research and yes exactly yeah, okay. right um so there's a lot more to this because i've only just explained to you the foundations of our investment in oil and weapons in the region and it's been going on ever since uh the book from which i've largely pulled all this is called dying to forget oil power palestine and the foundation of u.s policy in the middle east it's a long title uh but by irene l Genzier, and it's on the book list in the description or on our blog so If you're curious as to how this continued to unfold, pick that up. Uh, My purpose here is not to give you every detail, but just to explain why our government gives Israel unconditional support, no matter how clearly horrible their government is. (laughs) Like, Netanyahu is an extreme right-wing fascist, and everyone knows it. Uh, But we still can't tell him to fuck off, no matter how much Dark Brandon calls him a bad man behind his back (laughs) because of all of this stuff. But on top of all this... I want to just explain one more weird part of the reason that so many in the U.S. are pulling for Israel. 
And it's somehow even more sinister than being willing to genocide people for oil and military supremacy. That reason is Christian Zionism. The belief that war in the Middle East is a prerequisite for the return of Jesus. And once Jesus does return, all those Jews are going to be fucked. Obviously, most Americans don't give a shit about our oil interests in Palestine. Mm. So you might wonder why so many non-Jews are still somehow deeply team Israel. This will help explain. It's not going to make sense, but it will explain. (laughs) According to a poll of evangelical Christians conducted by the Christian organization LifeWays, two-thirds of the respondents said that the promise of Israel to the Jews was an eternal and unchanging promise from God. 80% believe the creation of Israel was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy that would bring about Christ's return. And this isn't just limited to evangelicals. Uh, When Pew conducted similar research, so Pew is secular, obviously, they do a lot of the polling throughout the United States. uh, A third of Americans said that Israel was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. A third of Americans aren't evangelicals. So that is. Yeah, what's the sample size here? Do we know? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what this was. You'd have to look at the actual survey on there. A chunk. But yeah, a chunk. I mean, yeah, Pew is generally considered to be pretty representative of. Okay, okay, okay. The, okay. You know, cool. within a few, with a small margin of error. Um, and this is recent as well. This has been the past couple of years. Um, in the LifeWays poll, according to the Washington Post, more than six in 10 cited God's pledge to Abraham. And the third most cited reason was the existence of Israel was necessary for fulfilling prophecy. More than half of evangelicals said that was a reason that they supported Israel's existence. So that's a shit ton of Americans who think Israel has the right to take over the whole region by any means necessary, literally because God says so. That's really hard to argue with. Um, John John Hagee, evangelical superstar pastor and founder of Christians United for Israel, said in 2021 during a volley of rockets between Israel and Palestine, quote, when I tell you the rapture of the church is imminent, Imminent means it can happen at any time. That is not an overstatement. It's an understatement. If you're not ready, get ready, because we're getting ready to leave this world. Hagee even said in a 2005 sermon that God actually sent Hitler to push European Jews to Israel. Shut up. I kid you not. This is what I mean when I say, like, support for Israel is not about Jews. Like, people who support Israel are often extremely anti-Semitic. Um, and Hagee is one of those people. Uh, very firmly behind Israel. Uh, called Hitler a half-breed Jew and said that he sent, uh, that God sent him to push the Jews okay. to Israel, thus ushering in the second coming. And you learned in the second episode of this podcast exactly what he's talking about when he says we're about to leave this world. Uh, The second coming of Christ to come and take away all the evangelicals and leave everyone else to suffer horribly through the end times. Similarly, Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, California, a church that is unavoidable if you live in Southern California, uh, said the Bible tells us in the end times that Israel will be scattered and regathered. The Bible predicted hundreds of thousands of years ago that a large force from the north of Israel will attack her after she was regathered and one of the allies with modern Russia or Magog will be Iran or Persia. If you get up in the morning and read this headline, Russia attacks Israel, fasten your seatbelt because you're seeing Bible prophecy fulfilled in your lifetime. So cool. 
<laughs> that's like what's crazy about both of these is the excitement behind them, right? Like, yeah, oh man, it if is, these people palpable. start killing yes. each other, rubbing fuck their hands, yeah, rapture right? time. Yeah, it's it's kind of horrifying. Mm. <laughs> and, and to be clear, while Jews and Israel are central to this prophecy, they don't get to reach the finish line with the Christians. According to this theology, known as premillennial dispensationalism, 144,000 Jews will convert to Christianity, and the rest will suffer with all the rest of the unrepentant sinners. So we're not talking about a theology that actually has any reverence for Jews, but one that sees them as a means to an end. They're just as demonic as the rest of us heathens, but God's going to convert some of them, and the rest, well, they made their choice. Hagee explained, what will come soon is the Antichrist and his seven-year empire that will be destroyed in the Battle of Armageddon. Then Jesus Christ will set up his throne in the city of Jerusalem. He will establish a kingdom that will never end. According to religion news, Christians send hundreds of millions of dollars to Israel each year, in part to fund their illegal settlements, and they consistently back politically and monetarily politicians who support U.S. relations with Israel. Most American evangelicals have no idea that there's such thing as Palestinian Christians. I remember one spoke mm. during chapel at my university and people were livid about it. And having not grown up steeped in Zionism, I was confused about the whole thing. I did not understand why people were mad. Uh, but Christians are deeply invested in not knowing anything about the Palestinians because their worldview depends on Israel having the God-given yes, right course, to the region. Yeah, that's why... When Trump moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, he said that's for the evangelicals. So he is trying to help with that biblical prophecy moving along for the evangelicals. When Hamas attacked on October 7th, Christians United for Israel tweeted, To the terrorists who have chosen this fight, hear this. What you do to Israel, God will do to you. Despite today's weeping, joy will come because he who watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And on top of all this, just being a batshit set of reasons to allow for the murder of nearly 12,000 children, it's also a fairly recent interpretation of scripture and one that doesn't have a lot of biblical backing. It's only been a thing since the 1800s, and it's not a belief held by mainline Protestants or Catholics around the world, but is largely an American fixation. And unfortunately, one that's spreading in places like South America now. So a large chunk of the United States politics is being led by people who believe 200-year-old biblical fan fiction that says you can slaughter as many brown folks as necessary to give Jews mm -hmm. Israel so that evangelicals can be raptured and the Jews and everyone else left to perish. Very solid foreign policy background there. And very, if I'm reading this right, very literal interpretations of scripture. Like, well, no, that's the thing. It's not literal at all. That's why okay, this is okay, only okay. like a 200-year-old theology. It's really taking a lot of liberties with what the text actually says. And it's right. very much an interpretation of the scripture, not not what it actually says in the book. So, yeah. But not as as I'd love to think, a fringe... Right. Like, sect. I mean... Exactly. It is on a global scale. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, I yeah, said, yeah, like yeah. mainline Protestants and Catholics don't believe this. This is yeah, very yeah, much yeah. an American sort of theology, you know, and, and there's obviously, like I said, it's catching on to South America. It's, you know, there's 
British evangelicals as well, you know, all your Hillsong types and things like that over there um, that have kind of sprung up. Um, but largely globally, this is not a thing, but mm-hmm. it matters because in the U.S., yeah, that's yeah. not an entirely fringe belief. And further, because evangelicals have disproportionate influence on yes. Yes, politics. Yes, yes, Okay, here. okay. So whether or not the vast majority of us believe this, that voice is guiding a lot of the politicians of this country because they're getting so much money from people who believe this, you know, they're along with um, organizations like APAC, which is like a specific Israel um, lobby uh, here. But there's a lot of just regular people who are like, listen, if the rapture is going to come, we need to be putting our money behind Israel. And so politicians are following that line. What are some of the what are some of the names then of American politicians? Oh, of, any of, GOP of power politician. All of them. Who, who have this in their ear. Yeah, all of them. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, okay. and non-GOP as well, but definitely mm-hmm. pretty much every um, Republican politician is going to be following this for sure. Okay. Whether they believe it personally or not, their constituents absolutely believe this. So that's yes, going to be I mean, them. Either, either explanation is as bad as the other. They either believe it or are pretending to right, because of exactly. the, the money and influence that... that comes with it right exactly on the other hand like biden's a catholic this wouldn't uh this wouldn't be part of his ideology but the other elements of this the more um political reasons are the reasons why he insists on being behind this even though privately he keeps on bad mouthing netanyahu and things like that he keeps supporting this because politically it's what he believes not religiously what he believes so yeah, that's my survey of why the U.S. is deeply deranged in its support for Israel. <laughs> like, Zionist Jews in the U.S. have their own reasons. And I recommend the documentary Israelism to understand how such a deep connection to Israel is formed in many American Jews. Like, that's a whole other thing separately. Um, but for the non-Jewish in the U.S., it's largely always been about anti-Semitism, oil, anti-communism, military supremacy, and biblical prophecy. Uh, this is this is landing. You'll be Good. delighted to hear. Beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, while I wouldn't fucking pretend for a second to have the kind of the depth of the grasp that you do on this, the the headlines are certainly landing. Love that, and that's what we, you know, that's what I'm aiming for, bit by mm. bit, unraveling this. The first, mm. I mean, the first week obviously is more of a like. You know, just get to know how we got here sort of situation. The second week experiencing like what what happened and how the British were involved with it. And now we're getting into kind of the meat of like, why the fuck is it like this? right? Yep. And why are we supporting this? Um, and next week, I'm going to close out our series here by bringing this into modern times, talking about sort of the the wars that have happened over the past 20 years there. Um, and the other big fat elephant in the room Hamas. We got to talk about what that is, because you can't have a conversation about this without people sort of bringing up Hamas and what it, what does it mean? Like, are they to blame? Can we really blame Israel for what's going on there when Hamas is operating in Palestine? So we're going to talk about how that came to be, uh, what they do there, the idea of resistance, um, and sort of the things that have been happening in recent times that have led us to Gaza today. Well, fuck. (laughs) Indeed. 
look, uh, from the beginning, you know, from the fucking right at the start of Jack of All Graves, it's, it's always been about looking at the uncomfortable truths mm-hmm. of the fucking world around us, the world we live in. It's all, That's what always been the statement, hasn't it? Exactly. You know, try and 100%. fucking, try and find something to hold on to, try and find something to, to, to grasp onto in a world that's going to shit. And there's never been a, 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 a more relevant and timely example of the world going to shit mm-hmm. than this. Yeah, um, absolutely. So yes, this is this is this is what we do, and we're doing it. Indeed. So hopefully you'll uh, join us as we finish this out next week, um, and then we'll sort of get back to normal Joe Aggie things. But we had to say our piece, you know, and, and like you just said, Mark, this is you know the central mandate of this podcast uh, is to address the horrors of being human head on and how the world is mm. falling apart around us. So, you know, I'm happy that we're talking about it and happy to get this out here. And hopefully, you know, it's hitting for other people and people are realizing that like, hey, now you know more than already in three episodes, you know more than a lot of people do about what's going on over there. But realizing that um, you don't need to know everything. You don't have to have understood every single thing that I have said here and memorized every fact about, mm. you know, the what the governments were doing and all of this kinds of stuff to understand that it's what's going on is wrong. That, you know, none of it is an excuse for killing children and for displacement of human beings and things like that. That we live in a world full of anti-Semitism and a world full of Islamophobia and a world that... I, in which I like to think we don't want this for anybody. Of course. The idea is never again for anyone. At some point, the question needs to be asked, what the fuck to do? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and, and I think maybe we'll talk a little bit about that next week and what people are doing. But that's, you know, that's the place we find ourselves in that's so tough. And why one of the things that I have sort of taken on is being able to educate people the best I can because I'm not a politician. I'm not a doctor. I can't go and, you know, patch people up over there. You know, I have no power in a lot of ways. But what I do have power to do is to tell people what's going on. And I think that we've seen since October um, how powerful simply spreading that knowledge is. And from there... You know, it's about how do we impact our governments and things like that. And I don't know that we've completely figured that out yet. They're right now very willing to just steamroll right over us. Sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, this is the struggle. Hi. <laughs> yes. You want to close us out, Mark Lewis? Yeah. Look, it's <laughs> stay spooky sounds trite, but <laughs> fucking hell, you gotta. You gotta. What else are you going to do?